0: Section 19 of Discourses Biological and Geological by Thomas Huxley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Geological Contemporaneity and Persistent Types of Life. 1862 addressed to the Geological Society on behalf of the President by one of the Secretaries. Merchants occasionally go through a wholesome, though troublesome and not always satisfactory process which they term taking stock. After all the excitement of speculation, the pleasure of gain and the pain of loss, the trader makes up his mind to face facts and to learn the exact quantity and quality of his solid and reliable possessions. The man of science does well sometimes to imitate this procedure, and forgetting for the time the importance of his own small winnings, to re-examine the common stock in trade, so that he may make sure how far the stock of bullion in the cellar, on the faith of whose existence so much paper has been circulating, is really the solid gold of truth. The anniversary meeting of the Geological Society seems to be an occasion well suited for an undertaking of this kind, for an inquiry, in fact, into the nature and value of the present results of palaeontological investigation, and the more so as all those who have paid close attention to the late multitudinous discussions in which palaeontology is implicated must have felt the urgent necessity of some such scrutiny. First in order, as the most definite and unquestionable of all the results of Palaeontology, must be mentioned the immense extension and impulse given to botany, zoology, and comparative anatomy by the investigation of fossil remains. Indeed, the mass of biological facts has been so greatly increased, and the range of biological speculation has been so vastly widened, by the researchers of the geologist and paleontologist that it is to be feared there are naturalists in existence who look upon geology as brindley regarded rivers rivers said the great engineer were made to feed canals and geology some seem to think was solely created to advance comparative anatomy were such a thought justifiable it could hardly expect to be received with favour by this assembly but it is not justifiable your favourite science has her own great aims independent of all others and if notwithstanding her steady devotion to her own progress she can scatter such rich arms among her sisters it should be remembered that her charity is of the sort that does not impoverish but Blesseth him that gives, and him that takes. Regard the matter as we will, however, the facts remain. Nearly 40,000 species of animals and plants have been added to the Sestima naturae by paleontological research. This is a living population equivalent to that of a new continent in mere number, equivalent to that of a new hemisphere, if we take into account the small population of insects as yet found fossil, and the large proportion and peculiar organisation of many of the vertebrata. But beyond this, it is perhaps not too much to say that, except for the necessity of interpreting paleontological facts, the laws of distribution would have received less careful study, while few comparative anatomists and those not of the first order would have been induced by mere love of detail as such to study the minutiae of osteology were it not that in such minutiae lie the only keys to the most interesting riddles offered by the extinct animal world. These assuredly are great and solid gains. Surely it is a matter for no small congratulation that in half a century, for paleontology, though it dawned earlier, came into full day only with Cuvier, a subordinate branch of biology should have doubled the value and interest of the whole group of sciences to which it belongs. But this is not all. Allied with geology, paleontology has established Two laws of inestimable importance the first that one and the same area of the earth's surface has been successively occupied by very different kinds of living beings the second that the order of succession established in one locality holds good approximately in all the first of these laws is universal and irreversible. The second is an induction from a vast number of observations, though it may possibly and even probably have to admit of exceptions. As a consequence of the second law it follows that a peculiar relation frequently subsists between series of strata containing organic remains in different localities. The series resemble one another not only in virtue of a general resemblance of the organic remains in the two, but also in virtue of a resemblance in the order and character of the serial succession in each. There is a resemblance of arrangement, so that the separate terms of each series, as well as the whole series, exhibit a correspondence. Succession implies time. The lower members of an undisturbed series of sedimentary rocks are certainly older than the upper, and when the notion of age was once introduced as the equivalent of succession, it was no wonder that correspondence in succession came to be looked upon as a correspondence in age, or contemporaneity and indeed as long as relative age only is spoken of correspondence in succession is correspondence in age it is relative contemporaneity but it would have been very much better for geology if so loose and ambiguous a term as contemporaneous had been excluded from her terminology and if in its stead some term expressing similarity of serial relation, and excluding the notion of time altogether had been employed to denote correspondence in position in two or more series of strata. In anatomy where such correspondence of position has constantly to be spoken of, it is denoted by the word homology and its derivatives. And for geology which after all is only the anatomy and physiology of the earth it might be well to invent some single word such as homotaxis similarity of order in order to express an essentially similar idea this however has not been done and most probably the inquiry will at once be made to what end burdens signs with a new and strange term in place of one old, familiar and part of our common language? The reply to this question will become obvious as the inquiry into the results of paleontology is pushed further. Those whose business it is to acquaint themselves specially with the work of paleontologists, in fact, be fully aware that very few, if any, would rest satisfied with such a statement of the conclusions of their branch of biology as that which has just been given. Our standard repertories of paleontology profess to teach us far higher things, to disclose the entire succession of living forms upon the surface of the globe, to tell us of a wholly different distribution of climatic conditions in ancient times. To reveal the character of the first of all living existences, and to trace out the law of progress from them to us. It may not be unprofitable to bestow on these professions a somewhat more critical examination than they have hitherto received in order to ascertain how far they rest on an irrefragable basis or whether after all it might not be well for paleontologists to learn a little more carefully that scientific as artium the art of saying i don't know and to this end let us define somewhat more exactly the extent of these pretensions of paleontology Everyone is aware that Prof Braun's Untersuchungen and Prof Pictet's Traite de Paleontologie are works of standard authority, familiarly consulted by every working paleontologist. It is desirable to speak of these excellent books and of their distinguished authors with the utmost respect, and in a tone as far as possible removed from carping criticism. Indeed, if they are specially cited in this place, it is merely in justification of the assertion that the following propositions, which may be found implicitly or explicitly in the works in question, are regarded by the mass of paleontologists and geologists not only on the continent but in this country as expressing some of the best established results of paleontology. Thus animals and plants began their existence together not long after the commencement of the deposition of the sedimentary rocks and then succeeded one another in such a manner that a totally distinct faunae and florae occupied the whole surface of the earth one after the other and during distinct epochs of time a geological formation is the sum of all the strata deposited over the whole surface of the earth during one of these epochs a geological fauna or flora is the sum of all the species of animals or plants which occupied the whole surface of the globe during one of these epochs the population of the earth's surface was at first very similar in all parts and only from the middle of the tertiary epoch onwards began to show a distinct distribution in zones. The constitution of the original population, as well as the numerical proportions of its members, indicates a warmer and on the whole somewhat tropical climate, which remained tolerably equable throughout the year. The subsequent distribution of living beings in zones is the result of a gradual lowering of the general temperature, which first began to be felt at the poles. It is not now proposed to inquire whether these doctrines are true or false, but to direct your attention to a much simpler, though very essential, preliminary question: What is their logical basis? What are the fundamental assumptions upon which they all logically depend? And what is the evidence on which those fundamental propositions demand our assent? These assumptions are two. The first, that the commencement of the geological record is coeval with the commencement of life on the globe. The second, that geological contemporaneity is the same thing as chronological synchrony. Without the first of these assumptions there would of course be no ground for any statement respecting the commencement of life. Without the second, all the other statements cited, every one of which implies a knowledge of the state of different parts of the earth at one and the same time, will be no less devoid of demonstration. The first assumption obviously rests entirely on negative evidence. This is of course the only evidence that ever can be available to prove the commencement of any series of phenomena. But at the same time it must be recollected that the value of negative evidence depends entirely on the amount of positive corroboration it receives. If AB wishes to prove an alibi, it is of no use for him to get a thousand witnesses simply to swear that they did not see him in such and such a place, unless the witnesses are prepared to prove that they must have seen him had he been there. But the evidence that animal life commenced with the lingular flags, for example, would seem to be exactly of this unsatisfactory, uncorroborated sort the Cambrian witnesses simply swear that they haven't seen anybody their way, upon which the counsel for the other side immediately puts in 10 or 12,000 feet of Devonian sandstones to make oath they never saw a fish or a mollusk, though all the world knows there were plenty in their time. But then it is urged though the devonian rocks in one part of the world exhibit no fossils in another they do while the lower cambrian rocks nowhere exhibit fossils and hence no living being could have existed in their epoch to this there are two replies the first that the observational basis of the assertion that the lowest rocks are nowhere fossiliferous is an amazingly small one seeing how very small an area in comparison to that of the whole world has yet been fully searched. The second, that the argument is good for nothing, unless the unfossiliferous rocks in question were not only contemporaneous in the geological sense, but synchronous in the chronological sense. To use the alibi illustration again, if a man wishes to prove he was in neither of two places, A and B, on a given day, his witnesses for each place must be prepared to answer for the whole day. If they can only prove that he was not at A in the morning and not at B in the afternoon, the evidence of his absence from both is nil, because he might have been at B in the morning and at A in the afternoon. Thus everything depends upon the validity of the second assumption. And we must proceed to inquire what is the real meaning of the word contemporaneous as employed by geologists. To this end a concrete example may be taken. The Lias of England and the Lias of Germany, the Cretaceous rocks of Britain and the Cretaceous rocks of southern India are termed by geologists contemporaneous formations. But whenever any thoughtful geologist is asked whether he means to say that they were deposited synchronously, he says, no, only within the same great epoch. And if in pursuing the inquiry he is asked, what may be the approximate value and time of a great epoch, whether it means a hundred years, or a thousand, or a million, or ten million years, his reply is, I cannot tell. If the further question be put, whether physical geology is in possession of any method by which the actual synchrony or the reverse of any two distant deposits can be ascertained, no such method can be heard of it being admitted by all the best authorities that neither similarity of mineral composition nor of physical character nor even direct continuity of stratum are absolute proofs of the synchronism of even approximated sedimentary strata while for distant deposits there seems to be no kind of physical evidence attainable of a nature competent to decide whether such deposits were formed simultaneously or whether they possess any given difference of antiquity. To return to an example already given, all competent authorities will probably assent to the proposition that physical geology does not enable us in any way to reply to this question, were the British Cretaceous rocks deposited at the same time as those of India, or are they a million of years younger, or a million of years older. Is paleontology able to succeed where physical geology fails? Standard writers on paleontology, as has been seen, assume that she can. They take it for granted that deposits containing similar organic remains are synchronous. At any rate, in a broad sense, and yet those who will study the eleventh and twelfth chapters of Sir Henry de la Beche's remarkable "Researches in Theoretical Geology, published now nearly thirty years ago, and will carry out the arguments there most luminously stated to their logical consequences, may very easily convince themselves that even absolute identity of organic contents is no proof of the synchrony of deposits, while absolute diversity is no proof of difference of date. Sir Henry de la Beche goes even further, and adduces conclusive evidence to show that the different parts of one and the same stratum, having similar composition throughout, containing the same organic remains, and having similar beds above and below it, may yet differ to any conceivable extent. In age edward forbes was in the habit of asserting that the similarity of the organic contents of distant formations was prima facie evidence not of their similarity but of their difference of age and holding as he did the doctrine of single specific centres the conclusion was as legitimate as any other for the two districts must have been occupied by migration from one of the two, or from an intermediate spot, and the chances against exact coincidence of migration and of embedding are infinite. In point of fact, however, whether the hypothesis of single or of multiple specific centres be adopted, similarity of organic contents cannot possibly afford any proof of the synchrony of the deposits which contain them. On the contrary, it is demonstrably compatible with the lapse of the most prodigious intervals of time, and with the interposition of vast changes in the organic and inorganic worlds between the epochs in which such deposits were formed. On what amount of similarity of their faunae is the doctrine of the contemporaneity of the european and of the north american silurians based in the last edition of sir charles lyell's elementary geology it is stated on the authority of a former president of this society the late daniel sharp that between thirty and forty per cent of the species of silurian mollusca are common to both sides of the atlantic by way of due allowance for further discovery, let us double the lesser number, and suppose that 60% of the species are common to the North American and the British Silurians. 60% of the species in common is then proof of contemporaneity. Now suppose that a million or two years hence, when Britain has made another dip beneath the sea and has come up again some geologist applies this doctrine in comparing the strata laid bare by the upheaval of the bottom say of st george's channel with what may then remain of the suffolk crag reasoning in the same way he will at once decide that the suffolk crag and the st george's channel beds are contemporaneous although we happen to know that a vast period even in the geological sense of time and physical changes of almost unprecedented extent separate the two but if it be a demonstrable fact that strata containing more than sixty or seventy percent of species of mollusca in common and comparatively close together may yet be separated by an amount of geological time sufficient to allow of some of the greatest physical changes the world has seen what becomes of that sort of contemporaneity the sole evidence of which is a similarity of facies or the identity of half a dozen species or of a good many genera and yet there is no better evidence for the contemporaneity assumed by all who adopt the hypothesis of universal faunae and florae of a universally uniform climate and of a sensible cooling of the globe during geological time there seems then no escape from the admission that neither physical geology nor paleontology possesses any method by which the absolute synchronism of 2 strata can be demonstrated. All that geology can prove is local order of succession. It is mathematically certain that in any given vertical linear section of an undisturbed series of sedimentary deposits, the bed which lies lowest is the oldest. In many other vertical linear sections of the same series of course corresponding beds will occur in similar order but however great may be the probability no man can say with absolute certainty that the beds in the two sections were synchronously deposited for areas of moderate extent it is doubtless true that no practical evil is likely to result from assuming the corresponding beds to be synchronous or strictly contemporaneous, and there are multitudes of accessory circumstances which may fully justify the assumption of such synchrony. But the moment the geologist has to deal with large areas or with completely separated deposits, the mischief of confounding the homotaxis, or similarity of arrangement, which can be demonstrated with synchrony or identity of date for which there is not a shadow of proof under the one common term of contemporaneity becomes incalculable and proves the constant source of gratuitous speculations. For anything that geology or paleontology are able to show to the contrary a devonian fauna and flora in the british islands may have been contemporaneous with silurian life in north america and with a carboniferous fauna and flora in africa geographical provinces and zones may have been as distinctly marked in the paleozoic epoch as at present and those seemingly sudden appearances of new genera and species which we ascribe to new creation May be simple results of migration it may be so it may be otherwise in the present condition of our knowledge and of our methods one verdict not proven and not provable must be recorded against all the grand hypotheses of the palaeontologist respecting the general succession of life on the globe the order and nature of terrestrial life as a whole are open questions. Geology at present provides us with most valuable topographical records, but she has not the means of working them into a universal history. Is such a universal history then to be regarded as unattainable? Are all the grandest and most interesting problems which offer themselves to the geological student essentially insoluble? Is he in the position of a scientific tantalus, doomed always to thirst for a knowledge which he cannot obtain? The reverse is to be hoped. Nay, it may not be impossible to indicate the source whence help will come. In commencing these remarks, mention was made of the great obligations under which the naturalist lies to the geologist and palaeontologist. Assuredly the time will come when these obligations will be repaid tenfold, and when the maze of the world's past history through which the pure geologist and the pure palaeontologist find no guidance, will be securely threaded by the clue furnished by the naturalist end of section 19